We also will be reading from God's Word still in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. We began looking at this last Lord's Day. We'll, we'll continue for one more sermon looking at Exodus 16. We begin reading at verse 1. After God provided them water from, from that very water that had been bitter but turned sweet, and then through Elam in the twelve wells of water, verse 1 of chapter 16 we read, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness." to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At even, when ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning, then ye shall see the glory of the Lord, for that that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that ye murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses spake unto Aaron, Say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that at even the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew lay, that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoar frost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, It is manna. For they wist not, they did not know what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Amen. May God bless the reading and the further preaching of His Word. To Exodus chapter 16, as we hope to consider once again, Um, We we consider the last portion of chapter 15. That's when they encountered the bitter waters at Marah. Marah means bitterness. And that occasion the Lord um, guided Moses to that wood, that, that tree that was chopped and thrown in the water and it became sweet, able to be drunk. The Lord provided for them. In chapter 16, we will see the Lord providing again in a miraculous way in what can, in essence, be considered the second parallel majestic miracle 
um, regarding God's people. The, the coming forth out of Egypt um, and passing the Red Sea is, is, of course, the most visible and the one that seemed very grand and glorious because not only they were delivered, but also God's um, anger fell upon the enemies of God's people and they were delivered from the Egyptians. They stopped pursuing them. But the falling down from heaven of manna, they feel at home in heaven. And this is the joy. He wants already some of heaven in you before you are in heaven. That's what he's doing. And that's why you meet these saints who are more heaven. It is a majestic miracle. And, and these two complaints, the complaining with no water and the complaining of no food, are couched between these two majestic miracles. And we, we will park chapter 16 a little more here, even to focus on what our first point is, the anatomy of discontentment. You know, we, we understand that from now on, this life in the wilderness will bring many occasions for God's people to deal with afflictions. They will be tests, and we, we know the story. We know how they will fail again and again. There will be some who succeed majestically, and it's even a miracle in and of itself that they do. But there will be cycles of complaining. There there will be, in essence, four themes in in everything that we will be reading from from Exodus now. One, One theme are the trials that they will face. It will be one trial after another. Walking in the wilderness is is not easy. And we saw that this this is an emblem, really, of of life itself, the life of the believer. The the life in Egypt is an emblem of, of the life of the unbeliever. The crossing of the Red Sea is an emblem of salvation and being delivered from the bondage of sin. But where they go to before they reach the promised land is the wilderness. And that becomes an emblem of life itself for the believer. And it will be marked with trials. And we should not be surprised by trials. Because it is what living in the wilderness brings. And the second theme will be the complaints that the people will make again and again, repeatedly. And certainly there will be different lessons from each occasion. They're not right, written down in the Bible just for the sake of repetition. We, we know that they have been written here. The testimony of, of the New Testament says that they have been written for our um, advantage to teach us. And then thirdly, the third theme that we find through Exodus now is the provision of God. That God will be providing again and again, uh, even though they, they complain. We've seen it already. God provided water um, through that miracle of the, of the wood that turned the water sweet. And then manna and the quails the next day, or the next moment. Uh, the next event, and then also the provision of of how to worship God. It it will be in in Exodus, the whole beginning of of the explanation and the measurements and the the items that are to be included in the tabernacle. Um, So it's a glorious theme in, in Exodus. Not only God providing for a people who are complaining, but He provides for them how they can worship God. See, while they're complaining, they get food and water, and God is saying, and I want you to worship me the right way. And then fourthly, the other theme that we also see through Exodus is the way that God punishes people. It's not always that He lets them go without a very severe reproof, even even deadly one. We'll find God disciplining His people with the rod again and again, Trials, complaints, provisions, and punishments. And, and we're here um, looking at the first two trials that they encountered. Lack of water and lack of food. And, and we saw uh, already last time, and, I, and I'm only going to bring this in, in our little introduction, is that those problems, the, the blessed thing about them, is that those problems outside were being used of God to reveal the greater problem inside. There were two problems out there, lack of water and lack of food. But there were many other problems inside, which was lack of faith and lack of contentment. We saw lack of gratitude also. 
We saw that there was clearly a self-centeredness in their hearts. And God was revealing those things. See, we, are, we, we very easily see the things that lack that give us comfort. But God wants you and me to learn the things that lack that gives Him praise. And you agree with me. That's what matters most. Not what gives me comfort, but what gives Him glory. And if there's something in your heart and mind, in, in my that does not give glory to God. God looks at my maybe lack of food and He says, I don't care about your lack of food. As long as that lack of food leads you to see that I'm a God who deserves all the honor and glory. You could, just like God heard you, you could say number two, God forgave you. Because what is the greatest enemy in your life, beloved? See, in light of all of this, a sickness or an unemployment or a lack of a husband or wife, or a difficult wilderness, but it has its oasis. They even found theirs in Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and three score and ten palm trees. See, that's a picture of, of, yes, it is a wilderness in this world. We can't expect that we're in heaven yet, because we aren't. But there are oases. And, and see, beloved, this, this is what's so glorious about the Lord's Day. It is the most glorious moment of oasis kind of wilderness life that the Christian will ever encounter upon this earth is water and true bread for your soul and mind to be revived and refreshed and go on because Monday, beloved, will be another wilderness. It may have its moments of oasis even there. When you read the Bible as a family, that's an oasis who is water and true bread for your soul and mind to be revived and refreshed and go on because Monday, beloved, will be another wilderness. It may have its moments of oasis even there. When you read the Bible as a family, that's an oasis in the wilderness. When you, when you pray and you're having a meal, that's an oasis in the wilderness. When you go to work, sometimes it might be a whole day of wilderness. And there might be complaints there. It might be people cheating on you. There might be people who, who, who cut you in the traffic. And there might be accidents. Or we hear these news of people who are dying in Afghanistan. And all of that is the wilderness reality that we are in. This is not the promised land. And that's the big problem when people focus so much on what we need is a political system that works, and they start, in essence, really trying to make this country or whatever country we live in as a heaven in itself, and that will never happen on this side of the Jordan. They had to still cross the Jordan and then get into the promised land, which is an emblem of heaven. But before, there is the Jordan, which is an emblem of death. So while we're alive, beloved, we're in the wilderness. And we need to make good use of all the oases that we have, which is right now. And together as a family, reading the Bible, boys and girls, when, when your father or mother opens the Bible and, and has a moment where you're studying God's Word at home, those are the 12 wells of water and three score, ten palm trees of your day. You're being nurtured. You're learning more about God. And that's what leads us through the wilderness. Um, so let me begin um, the whole theme of the anatomy of discontentment. What, what we're going to do in this first point is, is really consider where complaining comes from and why it should not exist in the heart of a believer who understands who you are and even understands what the trials in this world are and you understand who God is, who is the God who ordains the trials. And looking even at, at what's happening, what we find in our, in our narrative before us, um, but first, let me, in, in this first point, even set the problem and make it very clear. We, we're all part of it. We, we all understand this, and we all participate in it to some degree or another. There are some of us a lot less guilty because your heart, bless your heart, it is so full of contentment, so full of gratitude, and so full of faith that you don't do much of this. But most of us do. See, we live in a world where complaining is 
commonplace. If you don't complain, the world looks at you and says, what's your problem? See, they complain that you don't complain enough. You're not, you're not following in the flow. It is the way of life. It is rewarded in many places, so it just encourages us to keep doing it. Litigation is a way of life for many. There was one article written by a Rutgers Law School professor, and he said that suing is supposedly as American as apple pie. Now, it's interesting that this professor was trying to show that that America's not really so much number one in complaining and even suing. And, and yet, the things he said, like, like this reality, why do we think that really we are a nation that is high in litigation? It is because we are. Another study by Mark Ramsayer and Eric Rasmussen from, from Harvard, this was in 2010, They were putting the numbers of litigations per 100,000 people in every nation. And America was number one. 5,806 litigations per 100,000 people. So you multiply by by the amount of people in this nation and you see the thousands of litigation in our nation. England is number two with 3,681 litigations in that 2010 study. France is number three with 2,416 litigations. Japan is number four with 1,700 as an average. Australia trails fifth with 1,500. And then Canada with 1,450. You see the difference there. Canada, 1,450. America, 5,800 per 100,000 people. So it's, it's a percentage. It's not a total. We have the greater number of lawyers and judges in our nation, and our car insurance is also greater than any of those other nations. We complain about the weather. If it rains, it's too wet. If it's sunny, it's too warm. And in the winter, it's too cold. We complain about our coals. Close the ones we have or the ones we don't. We complain about the government. We complain about the one we have, and then we complain that we don't have the one we want. We complain about our judges, our leaders, our roads, our cars, our homes, the colors of our homes or the colors of our cars. We, people complain about their children. Children complain about their parents. Both Parents and children complain about their schools or their teachers. We, we go to restaurants and we complain about the food, about the service, about how long it took, about the parking, or about the lack of masks in the restaurant, or because there were mandates for masks in the restaurants. People go to parties and they complain about the parties. They're not invited to parties, and then they complain about those parties. about traffic. We complain that people drive too fast or they drive too slow. There are too many signs or too few signs. I've I've complained of that. I've been places that I get all lost. Where are the signs in this country? We're complaining. We complain about lines waiting too long. We complain about slow Wi-Fi even when it's free. And we believe that we are entitled to complain. So we go on complaining. We fly in airplanes. I mean, think of it. 50 years ago or or more, people would be just delighted to think that they can fly. But now we complain about the process of flying, the lines, the security, the service. We complain that it took too long to get there. We complain that it was too shaky. We complain that they didn't have Coke or that they didn't have offer water and we're flying and we don't stop to startle the thought I am flying over continents Um, people complain that Facebook um, statuses keep coming to their account when they have the full freedom to block those updates I, I didn't even know about those statuses I didn't know about the blocking but I've heard that there are people who complain about something they can completely control They complain about chores. 
about cold hands, about math, about not having enough clothes, about politics, about mess, about their looks, about being hungry, thirsty, full, about immigration and emigration, about phone problems, computer problems, in-laws, co-workers, work hours, work shifts, about pets, about being singled, and about being married, about being tired because you work too hard, or being tired that you're unemployed. And I'm sure there are more categories if we were to meditate a little longer. See, the reality is that we truly believe we are entitled to complain. And merely, the status for complaining is merely being alive, existing in this world. We think we therefore can complain. The review world is a fertile ground for complaint. And you've probably noticed that as you read reviews and you read them and you even wonder, why did someone bother to write this? They didn't have to buy this product. But, but they'll say things like, um, it, it, it took too long for an order to come or it didn't arrive at all. The company reimbursed fully, but the person still feels they need to give just two or two and a half stars. Um, they'll say, it's not like the description or it did not fit me or it arrived broken. And, and it's as if they lived in a world that never had problems before they ordered that item. And they need to let the world know. So how do we deal with this? Do, do you identify? Now, this is why I prefaced. I, I know there are some who are so full of faith, so full of contentment and gratitude, that this list might sound to you, and I, I pray it may sound to each of us as very foreign, and we just see it out in the world there. But how can it be? Well, we're really, really not a part of this. I do really believe we can mature in the Christian walk, in this wilderness wandering, where we're not a part of that wholesale, where Christians really are light, where they are like Joshua's and Caleb's. Remember, the 12 spies went. Not all of them came back grumbling. Two did not succumb to that. It's possible, beloved. It's possible to live a life where your meal arrives cold and you can literally say, Lord, I thank thee for this cold meal and I will give a tip to this waiter. She had nothing to do with it. And I don't care if she did. I'm not going to complain. I have food in my plate. How can we do this? How can we live this life that is complaint-free? And, and, I, and I want this sermon to come at the very beginning of the onslaught of cycles of complaint that we will find in Exodus to, to set like, like a foundation. And, and this is where we see the anatomy of discontentment when we, when we t- try to diagnose the problem. What is the one reality, the non-virtue of all of these complaints? And if there's one word that we can put that would say why a heart would would sue McDonald's for hot coffee, which they paid knowing it was hot. The lady didn't order cold coffee. And then there's this other man who enters um, um, Chipotle Chipotle, and and sues Chipotle because he happened to be in a wheelchair and the counters weren't his height. Why do these things happen? It happens because of discontentment. That's the non-virtue. And I put it that way because, of course, the virtue is contentment. What do you call the opposite of contentment? It's a sin. What sin underlies all of the reviews that are mean, that are cruel? You could have picked the phone and talked to the person if it was so serious. But why let the world know not to go shop there anymore? It's discontentment. And where does discontentment come from? Well, in a way, in a word we could say, discontentment comes from ignorance. Ignorance of truth. Of things that are solid. That do not move. And and this is where we're going. Um, Look what sin does. Look at the people. Look at, we've been following them in Egypt and now out of Egypt. And notice what sin does. See, sin is this. They are there seeing a wilderness. See, understand. Understand it must be very hard to be there. And you get to the water. Finally, there's water. And you taste it and it's bitter. 
How hard that must be. But then the discontentment is the sin. And what's it do? It literally puts like blindfolds in the eyes of their minds and they forget all the evil and consider only the good of the past. It's like sin erases the past. And and this is what I mean. Think of God's people. See, we're following what we're learning from the text. These are people who were in bitter slavery. Okay, this is bitter water, but we did live in bitter slavery. And they forgot that. They, they forgot the cries and groans that they themselves made to God. And that's why they're now in the wilderness. They were delivered from that bitterness. Yes, there's a new bitterness, but they were delivered from the bitterness of the past. But see, they forgot. It's like they're blinded to the illness, the, 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 the ills of the past. They, they forgot that baby boys were thrown in the River Nile for birth control in Egypt. They forgot that. Because they're talking about going back. They forgot the brick-making under scorching Egyptian sun without straw. They forgot that. They have an amnesia of the bad things of the past. But see, it's a very qualified amnesia. Because you you read how they're saying, well, when we were in Egypt, I I would rather die there because we would die. We sat there by the flesh pots and we did eat bread to the full. That's verse 3. See, they forgot their babies being thrown into the river, but they remember the flesh pots. They remember there was some semblance of family life. They would come back very busy, very, I mean, very tired from work and even lashes on their backs, but they would sit and have a meal as a family. And and they remember that. But astonishingly, they forget how the masters were there screaming for them to keep stepping on that mud to produce those strawless bricks. That's one thing. But sin gives another kind of of very defined blindness for the present. See, in terms of the past, they forget the bad things, they remember the good things. For the present, it's the opposite. They forget the good and they think only of the evil. They, They were forgetting that they were free. They were not in Egypt anymore. They didn't have to wake up and go under the lashes of those masters. They, they forgot all those bad things. And they forgot that here they are going toward the promised land. It, granted, it's far, but they're headed in that direction. And, and, and that says something, right? It's, it's very different than here you are, kind of turned your back from the promised land and, and you know you need to go back to that slavery place and you need to go back to the fear that if your wife gets pregnant and it's a baby boy, they might find him and certainly take care of him. They forgot all of those things, but they could only focus on the immediate evil. These are the things, see, of the present that they knew too well. They knew this water was bitter. They knew they were very thirsty. They arrived later in, 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 in between Sinai and, and Elam and in the desert of sin, and they know one thing. I am hungry. And remember, we saw that that hunger was, was not about to die. They had many animals. The very next chapter, they're going to cry that they don't have water to feed the animals. So if they're about to die, well, then go ahead and eat the animals and don't die for a few days. So they weren't about to die. But they said, and the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. They act as if they're about to die, and it was not true. They forgot. See, this is what I mean. They forgot the momentary uh, good things. And they could only remember the past good things. And they could only remember the present bad things. Now, having all of this, we we have two points before us. We have the reality of the harsh providences and the realities of the God of providence. Remember I said last time that we would be looking at four truths about the harsh providences. And seven truths regarding God's providence in general. And and as I go, you'll see what I mean. Let me start by considering the harsh providence. Remember I said that the reason discontentment happens is because our minds were ignorant about 
things, about truths. What truths? So these are the first four truths, and they're all about the harsh providence. So this is what I mean, little children. If, if going to school for you is hard, that's what I mean by a harsh providence. If, if of course, I'm being reprimanded about any kind of circumstance, that's a harsh providence. Losing a job, getting sick, or, or having something... Um, that, that is full of problems and difficulties. Those are harsh providences. But all of them have these four truths about them. And the first one is this. Every one of them are inevitable because of the fall. And I'm, I'm, when I say inevitable, of course, I'm not meaning you can trip if you, if you are careful. So, of course, be careful. But if a harsh providence comes to you, you cannot look at it and think that you have the strength and the might to put it just aside. No, if God is bringing that in His sovereignty, you need to understand this is the inevitable consequence of the fall. That's kind of the foundation. Christians need to understand this. See, the world rejects that. And they'll blame people. They'll blame everybody. They'll try to always find who is it who's the guilty one. But they don't, they don't go deep enough. Well, the guilty one is me. Because we were all in Adam. Adam was our representative head. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned. It is impossible to divorce ourselves from that reality as you remain human. Because he was your representative head. And anyone who tries to separate themselves will try living one day then without your own sins. You can't do it. And none of us would like to be in the place of Adam and think that we could have done differently. You don't stop to think of the overwhelming weight that one man held upon his shoulders. In essence, he was the representative of every human being that followed. Would you like to take his place? No. If I were there, I probably would have taken the fruit instead of Eve. And even though Eve was the first, she's not the one who was the head of the whole nation, of all of us. It was Adam. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. And, and now trace that. Why did he sin? And see, beloved, this is what brings to us as humans even a greater sense of guilt. Well, Adam was doing what God gave him freedom to do. See, the origin of his sin had a connection with a love in God's heart. God did not create a computer Adam who was designed not to sin. He created a free Adam who could obey and who could disobey. So the moment that they both ate of that tree, they were following the dictates of their own heart, which was connected to a premise of God's love. You see, a lot of people try to blame God for all the evil in this world. And again, it's, it's an ignorance. They don't realize, no, God, it was His love that gave Him the freedom. But then in His freedom... He gave us this. So the world even groans, beloved, not not because, because there's something wrong in how God planned this world. It's our sin. It's us. You see, this is how we need to understand harsh providences. They are inevitable because of the fall. That's number one. And then secondly, um, they are less, whatever harsh providence we receive, they are less than we deserve. That's a, that's a truth that we need to be reminded again and again. Because when, when the fall began, God had warned Adam that if they ate of the fruit of the tree, they would surely die. So see, we need to see death. What is death? Death is that which we deserve. It is the justice of God. That's why death happens. So I can't complain against death. It is a deserving reality. And, and then, of course, the whole reality that if you're not prepared for death, well, then there is eternal punishment. And see, we need to understand this, beloved. Do we stop to consider, I deserve eternally to be condemned to hell forever? 
And what existence would that be? And look at that hell and realize, beloved, that is what I deserve. In terms of of what's fair for me, in terms of what's right for me, if God were to be completely just, I would be relegated to that lake of fire for all of eternity. And see, immediately your mind starts changing when you're in that big, long line for whatever it is. If you start realizing, yeah, this line, it's, it's an effect of sin because things aren't all right. And I deserve hell. All of a sudden, that line becomes heaven. And you might start even fellowshipping with people, trying to encourage them to look to Jesus. But you see, beloved, when we live our lives so earthly and looking at this world and just looking at your clock and thinking, what, I'm going to be here forever in this line. Yes, it might be forever. But it might be a moment for you to realize God is preaching a sermon to you. If it weren't for my mercy, you would be in hell forever. See how foundational this is, beloved, to start cutting discontentment at the very source. How can I dare be discontent at a line that takes long when by my own Reputation and by my nature, what I deserve is an eternal hell. You see how wrong it is for a Christian to complain about a line or about cold food or a scratch on your car. And you can increase there the harshness because there's nothing harsher than to be separated forever from God in eternal punishment. See, these are truths that are unchangeable in light of a harsh providence. They are inevitable because of the fall. They are less than what we deserve. And thirdly, another principle that comes from Scripture is they are temporary. And we need to see, we need to be enshrined with these truths. The one who does not know and lives in ignorance, they they don't realize and they're in that harsh providence thinking this will be forever. God's Word says, no, it won't. It will not. And look at these witnesses from 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And this is a man who, by, by, the, by the facts of, of, what I could say is, by the narrative of the days of the past, we believe he was beheaded by the Roman emperor. This is Paul. And he, and he called that kind of life, he was so many times in prison, beaten, scourged, he called it a light affliction. It was but for a moment. Because you see, now Paul is in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, and it will far outweigh all his sufferings here on earth. Peter says the same thing, 5.10, 1 Peter 5.10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. He's writing to the church under persecution. It, for us, it looks like a lifetime. But we need to look at our lives in the lens of eternity. Psalm 35 says, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. could also be translated as a lifetime. Isaiah 54, 7, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. And then John 16, 20, where the Lord Jesus says, But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Yes, there's sorrow. We don't deny that reality. But we need to remember, okay, it's just for a moment. It will turn into joy. We need to be encouraged by that reality. And then Romans 8, 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So these harsh providences, they are light in light of eternity. They are little. They are short because of what we're comparing it with. So that's the truth number three. They're temporary. And then the fourth one is they serve a purpose. And this, this is what we dealt with last time. The problems out there reveal problems in here. And, and that's God's business. See, He's so interested in you, truly. Not just that you have a little more food or a little more money. He's interested that you have eternal life. He, he wants you forever. 
And so He wants to show you what's in your heart that is not conducive to heaven. It cannot live in heaven. You cannot dare be in heaven and be selfish. You cannot dare be in heaven and be discontent. You cannot dare be in heaven and be full of pride. Now, it's not that in in our struggles we are being more and more worthy of heaven. We we made that point clear too. The, The wilderness wandering life is not in order to be saved. It is because we are saved. God is preparing you for heaven. He wants you to feel at home in heaven. And this is the joy. He wants already some of heaven in you before you are in heaven. That's what He's doing. And that's why you meet these saints who are more heavenly. You talk to them for a little moment and you feel like you've just had a little fellowship with angels. I've met people like that, beloved. I know brothers and sisters in our own congregation like that. And it's heavenly. And that's what God is doing to each of our hearts. So it's, a, it's an encouraging thing. Those are the four truths um, regarding all of the harsh providences. They are inevitable because of the fall. They are less than what we deserve. They are temporary. And they serve a purpose. Now, what are the truths? And we might not have time to go through all of them, but I, but I really will try to bring them. Some of them, it's, it's the list form because there's seven of them. These are truths. The first list was truths about harsh providences. Now, these are truths about the God of providence. See, the God of harsh providences and the God of all providence. These are seven truths. And, and the way we take them is, again, directly from the text that we've been having. And looking at God's people, we can say this. See, no matter now how many um, afflictions they will face, they will have moments where they, it's not just bitter water that they find, it's no water. There are moments that they, they, they have enemies trailing behind them. Things that, that we agree are very hard things. But these are seven truths that always remain the same. And again, this is where you and I have to be informed so that when there's something to complain about, we will remember these truths and either close our lips or even say something good. Look at these seven things. No matter what God's people would suffer, they would always be a people of whom it could be said, God heard their groans. That's where it all began. That's where Exodus begins. God hears them and helps them. And here they are now in the desert. But see, they need to remember this. Wait, God heard me before. And we need to remember, so God now hear me again. This is what we need to remember. Whoever you are as a believer, God heard you once. And and, and this is is the whole point, see? God heard you. If you're a believer today, you are a believer because God heard your prayer for salvation. He heard your prayer that God would give you a new heart. He heard your prayer for conversion. God heard their groans and delivered them from Egypt. And that's a picture of God answering that prayer for salvation. And see, no matter what difficulty you'll ever face in your life, you need to remember, God heard me. So what do I do? I, I pray again. And, and this is what's been tying us with the study uh, even of Jesus teaching us to pray. Um, give us this day our daily bread. God's people found no bread. Jesus, in that, in that little phrase, give us this day our daily bread, are telling us what to do. We, we need to remember, if God heard me, my first prayer, well, he will hear my prayer now. And, and, and we understand that give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to read the answer again. You'll see the reality of how this relates really to everything. Look at the answer. That is, this is Lord's Day 50, page 86. That is, be pleased to provide us with all things necessary for the body. That means clothing. That means food and water. That means even transportation, that your body may arrive at your work where you need to labor. See, we're realizing that through prayer, we're dependent on God and we get it from Him. We receive it from Him. That we may thereby acknowledge Thee to be the only fountain of all good 
and that neither our care nor industry nor even thy gifts can profit us without thy blessing. And therefore that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it alone in thee. You see how this was happening. They arrive at bitter water. They don't go to their machinations. How can we provide this water? God was teaching, come to me. I heard your prayer. We'll pray again. Lord, make this water sweet. God would have done it because he did. He answered Moses' prayer. He pointed them to the wood. It became sweet. It's just like the catechism is teaching us. It's teaching us to realize, Lord, we have food on our plates. We prayed for it and we have it. So we're not going to trust me and my labor and my sweat. I'm going to trust Thee, Lord. Thou art the provider. Thou hast provided my work through which I have money and bought this food. It's not my insight. It's Thy grace. And so remember this. Whatever afflictions you've you've ever had, you, you have, if you're a true believer, God heard you before, well then go to Him again. He will hear you. The second truth is that you need to remember, um, and looking again at God's people, they were a people, again, no matter what would happen to them in the future, it could be said of them that they were protected by God. They were a protected people from the plagues in Egypt. See, that was something that marked the reality of the rest of their lives. Here, here they would find themselves um, among uh, people who would not give them passage, remember, and those nations would then threaten war, and they needed to remember, wait, God protected us in the past. He will protect us from these wars now. I need to remember this. And, and how it would apply to you here, I, w- I would say that this really is the blessing of forgiveness. Just like God heard you, you could say, number two, God forgave you. Because what is the greatest enemy in your life, beloved? See, in light of all of this, a sickness or an unemployment or a lack of a husband or wife or a difficulty in this life in harsh providences, there is nothing that equals the affliction of sin. Because sin is that one enemy that relegates us to that one eternal place from which there is no more salvation. Hell. We talked about hell and how utterly horrible that is, worse than any kind of affliction in this world. What is it that takes one there? It's sin. And if you're a Christian, you've been forgiven from sin. You've been pardoned. You have the greatest good. You may be faced with a very great evil, but you already have the greatest good. You have the forgiveness of your soul. See, and this is what God's people should have thought. There in Egypt, the hail didn't fall on us. It wasn't dark in our homes. Our neighbors' babies were dying if they were the firstborn, but not ours. So I will trust the God who protects me. And you have to remember this, beloved. You have to think, yes, this is a very sad providence. See, we're never denying that suffering is very great and hard. But at that moment, you need to think, Lord, but the suffering of sin and hell I will never receive because I have been forgiven. And God wants you to treasure that because it's the greatest good. As much as this may be the harshest evil in this world, you already have the greatest good. You have forgiveness that grants you to, to, to even these other things. The third thing we can think of, look at God's people, and you could say this, God heard them, God forgave them, and God redeemed them. That's the blessed fruit of being forgiven is that you are redeemed. Because I'm just following God's people and their history. And, and, and after they were protected in Egypt, they were delivered from Egypt in that great um, redemption story where the lamb was killed in every home. The blood was shed. Remember, we saw that's a picture of redemption. They were redeemed. They were bought out of that slavery and belonged to God as His people. And so again, this is what you think as as a true believer. I am one whom God has heard. I am one whom God has forgiven. I am one whom God has redeemed. I have been purchased by God. I belong to Him. I don't belong to this problem, to this difficulty, to this affliction. This is hard, but it does not own me. And I will not succumb to it. I will not just complain like the world does. I, I will live as a child of God under, under the wakes of this storm because I'm His. I've been redeemed. 
And fourthly, think of God's people again. Well, we've seen that it was, it was deliverance. Um, they, they got out of Egypt. That was redemption. And the wilderness wandering is sanctification. And in the wilderness wanderings, what would happen to God's people? Um, they, they were delivered in a majestic way. And as they were delivered, um, they entered that life of tests, but where God was preparing them. They were being sanctified. And it's the same thing you could say about yourself. If you're a Christian, you've been sanctified. You are being sanctified. And sanctification is the whole process of being saved from sin. Yes, you've been forgiven from sin, but sin has not given up on you. And sin is still trying to cling on. We, we understand this full well. Sin has not stopped the battle. So you can't either. Egypt stopped pursuing Israel, but in the wilderness, Israel will have many figures of sin trying to clench on to Israel so that they don't enter the promised land. And, and this is what we find in the Christian walk. Sin, clinging, and temptations, and trials... Even this war against a discontent spirit, it is a battle. See, discontentment like a sin tries to grab you and put you into its mold and make you to be a very obedient child in this complaining world and just be quiet and do as you are told. And that's what the world's doing. They're obeying master sin. But if you're a Christian, you're being sanctified. You're being delivered from the grasp of sin. And you need to remember this. The moment your heart is there, tempted to sin, and of course this applies to every kind of sin, not just the sin of discontentment. You need to remember this way. I am being sanctified. That means I'm, I'm supposed to battle against sin. Sin is not going to take dominion over me. I've, I've crossed the Red Sea and, and Egypt has been destroyed and even the armies that will come and face me in the wilderness, God will take care of them. He will fight for me. I will trust and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I will put sin to death. That's the life of wilderness wanderings. Egypt was not the only one trying to grasp Israel. There will be others. Satan pursues you and he tries to devour you. And you need to remember, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual war. Complaint that would fall from my heart is as if falling in this battle against discontentment. But no, I'm being sanctified. Lord, give me strength against a discontented heart. So that's number four. Then number five, so see, the Lord heard their cries. The Lord protected them from the plagues. The Lord redeemed them. The Lord delivered them, and they were being sanctified. And then number five is the presence of the Lord. See, this could always be said of God's people throughout Exodus. God is always with them. His cloud goes before them during the day. His pillar of fire during the night as a as a manifestation of his presence and, and of his presence we could also say um, the truth of every true believer the Holy Spirit is in you see no matter what harsh difficulties you need to remember these truths God heard you God forgave you God redeemed you God sanctifies you that's something he's still doing and God is present with you and beloved, in the affliction, Satan will tempt you to think you're alone. You might not even feel the presence of God because God in His discipline in some way is making Himself seem far. But you need to, by faith, understand He is near you. You need to trust that He is a God whose tender fatherly eyes are upon you. Because you are His. He heard you once. He will still hear you. We're the ones who feel He's far. He's never far. And sometimes we are the ones who are far because of our sins and our coldness in our hearts. And He wants you to experience His nearness. And I, and I guarantee to you, I guess I can't say that for every heart, 
But the testimony I hear and what I've felt in my own life is this. If for 10 minutes you are struggling in prayer and God is near, we'll then do 10 more minutes. And I dare say that after 20 minutes of prayer, you probably won't want to stop. Because all of a sudden, you will fear this closeness and nearness and warmness in your heart. And you will feel like you can sense the presence of God. And you will feel like no matter what you pray, God will give you. And the sense of fellowship grows and grows. And that's why you hear of these saints who would stay hours in prayer. But it's like the Lord says, if you're going to spend five minutes of prayer in me, I'm not going to give you the delights of that presence. Because you're not trying hard enough. It's like you don't even care. You see, God wants your heart. And so He will make you seek Him. Seek Him intensely. And what's the promise? You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And a five-minute devotion is not seeking with all our heart. So God is present with you. Believe that fifth truth. And sixthly, God provides for you. Um, Look at the people again. Here they are in the wilderness. They're complaining all the time. And you know what the story is. God will provide. He did provide sweet water. He provided quail and then bread. He's going to provide quail again. He's going to provide water from the rock. He's going to provide that their clothing will not go bad during the 40 years of their lives. And and this is, again, what we put into our lives, beloved. God provides for you. He provides guidance, and He provides food, and He provides spiritual guidance and physical guidance. He provides spiritual food and physical food. And, And this is the blessedness of being part of the body of Christ. Yes, some of us may have wants, but then what do we do? We carry the burden with that brother. And we go alongside. And God is providing for you through the body of Christ. It's not a, a brother or a sister who's providing literally. It's, it's really the Lord through them. And so even if you were to say, but, but you don't understand, I'm going in want. I don't have enough food. Well, then, if no one's noticed it yet, well, just come with your heart and, and don't be afraid of bringing it to the deacons. Bring it to the elder. Open your heart if there is a need. We need to be providing for one another. Imagine a child in a home who's lacking in a certain way, and that father doesn't know because there's so many things going on. He would love for that little boy or girl to come and say, Daddy, I'm, I'm needing this. And that father or mother would try to provide it. And this is what the family, the church is. It's a family. And God is the one providing Provision. And then the seventh, the seventh truth that is true about the people of Israel, and it's true about every true believer. Again, no matter what difficulty they were under, they were in the direction of the promised land. And see, this is the truth for your life. If you know the Lord, if you're saved by His grace, He's heard you once, He's forgiven you. He's redeemed you, He's sanctified you, He's present with you. He provides for you daily, and He will glorify you. There will be heaven, and there will be you in the likeness of His Son in heaven, that among the many brethren, He will receive the preeminence. You need to keep that in your heart, beloved, when harsh providences come your way. The truths about the harsh providences and the truths about the God of all providence. And, and, and I know my time has run, but I just need to end with this conclusion. And our second point is the miraculous provision of heavenly bread. I, I started this way. I just want to end this way. It's, it's not a coincidence that boys and girls, that, that miracle of miracles of crossing the Red Sea where it's just a few days from here and then they complain there's no water and they complain there's no food. The next day there's manna. And so think of these majestic miracles, the water parting on each side and bread coming from heaven every single day. Um, for 40 years, um, in 365 days, for 40 years, that's fourth. 15,600 days, but yes, minus every Sabbath, that's minus 2,080 days. Now, those 2,080 days, it doesn't mean, well, he didn't give bread this day. Well, he gave enough the day before. There's a miracle even in that. If they kept food from one day to the next, it went rotten. If they kept it from Friday to Saturday, 
they could eat it on Saturday. There's a whole Sabbath lesson that we will get to soon with the next portion, with people who dared keep the food for the next day when it wasn't a Sabbath and it went bad because they weren't trusting God. What, what is God teaching with this? In essence, he's saying this, beloved. Look, look what encouragement this is for you and me to stop complaining. He's saying, if you're mine, I don't care how much you sin against me, how much you complain against heaven, even though you deserve hell, I will never stop providing for you. My son will never stop being your sufficient Savior. The bread who came from heaven to feed your soul unto eternal life, it does not matter how much sin comes from your heart towards me, my son will ever be towards you until you are in heaven, where then you will no longer sin. And the true believer is to be grasped by this truth, whereby he would say, well then, Lord... This do in my heart. Make me holy. I don't want to be living toward heaven with every sin delighting in it as if I'm actually going to hell. You see, the true believer looks at this gracious, glorious God who couches the first two um, complaints with the greatest miracles ever to his people, a sea parting, Delivering a people and killing another and bread coming every single day minus one to, to provide for their needs to people who complain. See, God is saying something, isn't He? Is it worth complaining? No. Let us be holy. Let us be like Jesus. Let us live off of the bread of heaven who is a man of sorrows. You want a man who would have reason to complain about the beatings and the scourgings? When they nailed him to the tree, he said, Father, forgive them. The only complaint was this, for they know not what they do. See, it was the ignorance. They didn't know these truths, beloved, that you were just taught this morning, that we knew... These are truths that we live with, but put them in this category, beloved. You now know the truths about harsh providences will never change. They're inevitable. We deserve more than what we have in evil because we deserve hell. They're temporary. We need to remember, beloved, that we're on the way to heaven. Soon this wilderness wandering will end. And the sad truth is, If this wilderness was more glorious, many of us would prefer it here than heaven. And God in all this is saying, prefer me. Look what God I am. I will protect you even if you complain against me. And the the essence is, well then let's stop. Let's be like Jesus right now and be so full of gratitude full of contentment, full of faith. This is a God that we can believe and trust. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God Almighty, we pray that Thou would grant us and help us, Lord, as we do live in this wilderness. Grant us, Lord, to realize heaven is ahead. And how glorious a God Thou art, Lord, to love us still, even though we sin. And, and complaining is, is only one sin. Lord, Thou knowest each of our hearts and the repertoire, the list. We could say with the psalmist, our, hair, our sins are greater than the numbers of our hair. But yet, we still have from the cross a fountain that is inexhaustible to forgive us of our sins. Lord, help us then to be content and live contented lives. For we do live between the deliverance of Jesus and the daily provision of Jesus of our lives. The Red Sea crossing and the manna giving, Lord. We have Jesus 
And Lord, we pray then that those who do not have the Lord Jesus, that they would then see that Christ is their only hope and Savior, that Thou would deliver them, Lord, from the bondage of Egypt, and that they would begin their wilderness wanderings along with Thy people by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that none of us would expect that this wilderness is already a promised land. It isn't. And so help us, Lord, not to be surprised by the eventualities in this world. But Lord, we do pray that Thou would be in a very, in a very clear, focused way with those souls, Lord, whose providences in their lives are very harsh. Lord, in, in no way we are denying the difficulty that afflictions can be. And we plead with Thee that we as Thy people would even come round about those who are suffering, to even be part of the way by which provision is made through love, through sincerity, through compassion, through provision, in whatever ways, Lord, we are enabled. That we would not take light someone's affliction because there's something sacred going on. Thou art revealing things inside. And help us, Lord, to realize there's plenty inside of us, even if we're not part of those who are being afflicted in a given way. We pray that their afflictions would be even used in our own hearts, Lord, to to purify us, to make us more holy, and to make us more sympathetic. And we pray, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.